since May, we've been looking at the New Testament passages that use one little phrase, the two words, one another, and they really explain to us what loving one another looks like. It's a, it's a simple study in many ways, yet a very personal and even powerful one. And two weeks ago, we came to a passage from the letter to the Ephesians that the Apostle Paul wrote, and in chapter 5, verse 21, we encountered another one of those one another phrases, and that's where Paul writes to the church, you should submit to one another in the fear of God. And that idea of submission is challenging for us because we're not born as submitted people. We love our independence. Furthermore, most of us are citizens of a nation that uh, was born out of rebellion, just to like take Britain's side for a moment, right? But the fight for independence was worth it, right? And some of the, if you read the, the, the founding documents, I mean, they're powerfully written. And there are actually all kinds of theological truths woven into them, such as we believe that the Creator, that all men are endowed with these inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, things like that. So it's woven into the fabric. The problem is when you begin to live your life as if you are your own authority, autonomy or autonomous living, you're going to be in trouble because you're not actually created. I'm not actually created to live independently of God, first of all, and we're not actually designed to live independently of one another. And so when God comes into our lives and begins to change us through the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ and through the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit, one of the things he does is he begins to bring us back into right relationship with all kinds of people. And sin is what blows it all apart. You go back to Genesis 3 and you read the account of the fall of Adam and Eve, their first response was to run from God, and then you see them starting to, to separate one from another. So when God actually comes and says, Adam, where are you and what have you done? He's pointing the finger. He's not embracing his wife at that point and saying, you know, God have mercy, we really blew it. He, he's trying to shift the blame. And what does Eve do? She points the finger further down the line and says, the serpent tempted me, Right? Well, that's the beginning of a lot of difficulty. That's the beginning of broken relationships. But in that same chapter, God promises that he will send, uh, and as it's described in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, and that seed will crush the head of the serpent, and he, he will begin to reverse the curse. And we know, as, as the word of God continues to unfold, and as time went on and God was active, that the promised seed is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the great curse reverser. And though we are not yet in his presence where all things will be made new and we will be perfected finally, he is beginning that work right now. And so after this command to submit to one another, Paul then dives into several areas where it's probably most challenging to understand what that Christian submission should look like. And I said a couple weeks ago, and I want to say even at the outset, that when we talk about submission from a biblical perspective, we're not talking about breaking uh, marriages or families or even workforces into two classes of citizen. Like you've got the upper class and the lower class. We're actually, what the scriptures are actually teaching us is that God has designed particular roles for us to play and positioned us to bring blessing in ministry, service, care. Love, all kinds of things that he has in mind. And so following this command to submit, Paul goes forward with three particular relationships 
where I think submission may be the most challenging, and there's certainly the key areas where we live at, and, the, and at, the, at the same time, these are areas where we stand to bear the most fruit, spiritually speaking, and the most benefit. And the first is marriage, the second is family, and the third is our work. Now, because time is rather brief this morning, I'd like us to look at one side of the marriage relationship. At the end of chapter 5, if your Bibles are open there, or if you want to use one of the the Bibles in that uh, chair rack right underneath the seat in front of you, or maybe a couple of chairs down from you, uh, you can find this portion of Paul's writings on page 978. 978, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. So the key command, the overarching command, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We're actually going to focus on verses 25 through 32. So ladies, you can breathe a sigh of relief for a week. Men, this is a challenging passage for us, but it's one that's rich with God's grace and blessing. So I don't want any of you to be fearful at this moment. And, and I didn't come here you know, with a big hammer that your wife put in my hand saying, hey, Danny, uh, could you preach this Sunday? Because my husband really needs it. No, I haven't gotten any calls or emails or text messages like that. The reality is we all need it. Men and women, even little children, need to know what God's intention is for us. And, and what I really ultimately want to focus on this morning is not even the love that a husband is commanded to have for a wife, but actually the love that Jesus has for his church. That's what has to be central. That's what Paul actually makes Central. Now, as we read it, we're looking at it more from a personal perspective, so we're paying attention depending on our particular role. And if I'm a husband, I'm, I'm seeing some of those commands, and they're hitting me with you know, heavy weight. And if, and if you're a lady, you're reading that saying, well, I'm a wife. And if you continue through this passage where he speaks to fathers not provoking children to wrath, you're paying attention to those things. But woven through this entire passage is revelation about Jesus who he is, how he operates, and in this particular case, how he loves. So it's really important, men, for us to understand how does Jesus love his church. One other little qualifying statement I want to put here at the outset, and, and this is fascinating to me, and I need to do a lot more thinking on it personally, but would you not expect that after a command to wives to submit to their husbands as unto Christ, what, what do you... Th- what concept or even term might be the corollary to submission? 
lead, rule. Any other words come into mind? Because I, I agree, but those are the first two thought. Rule is the first word that comes to my mind. Lead, second. Did you just amen that? Okay. Okay, okay, good, thanks. This is my wife, by the way. If, as if there was any doubt at that moment. Yeah, wouldn't you expect it to be so, men? You know, take the lead. Be, be the strong, you know, ruling head in the home. But that's not where he goes, is it? He says you need to love your wives. And then says, as Christ loves the church. What a powerful thought. I want us to look at the love of Christ there are three particular terms, words, some of them right in the text, and then uh, another one that I've adjusted. I, the truth is in the text, but just to help you remember, it helps me remember, and they all begin with the, the letter S. The first is this, Christ sacrifices himself in love. Look at verses 25 through 26 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up. You know, this is the terminology of being delivered over to the power of another person or group. It's the same terminology that you find running through the Gospels that Jesus used when he predicted his coming death by crucifixion. Same terminology. Now, in the English text, it appears a little differently, but remember, when this was first written, it was actually written in Greek. That's the New Testament. That was the language of the day, language of the target audience. Jesus said in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, he said to his disciples, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is about to be delivered into. You could also translate that, given up. Delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. In Matthew 26, verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So this is essential to the gospel itself. If Jesus does not die that sacrificial death, then nobody like us is ever forgiven for their sins. Nobody like us gains entrance into heaven. And so it's all through the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. But Paul picks up on this and develops this theme, not just in this particular verse. If you went back to the beginning of chapter 5 in Ephesians and read, his exhortation there is, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then he describes that giving up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Death by crucifixion? fragrant offering yes it is because it's the death that brings life it's the death that 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 appeases God's wrath it's the death that fulfills God's justice and laws of righteousness and just as we've been learning through this one another series sacrificial love is what marks a community of faith like our church and Matt's message from Philippians 2 and we went back to that passage when Daniel read it uh, earlier in the service that's a reminder to us of the great humility of Christ the great example example of his sacrificial love but sacrifice as one author writes now finds a more specific application in the husband's role in contributing to marital harmony Men, we tend to think of, of sacrifice you know, as like hurling our lives in front of a bullet that's about to strike you know, our, our wife or a loved one. 
And there's reason for that, because we grew up idolizing superheroes and cowboys and white hats and, you know, whatever, you know, macho man was out there being portrayed to us. And certainly, we hope you would do that. You know, somebody pointed a gun and squeezed the trigger, and the bullet was flying towards your beloved one. We hope you would fling your body in front of her and take that bullet. But most of us will never have that opportunity to sacrifice in that way. The reality is, yeah, sigh of relief. The reality is the kind of sacrifices that are really going to test us come in those little things day by day where you have the choice of putting yourself first or putting your wife first. That's really what laying down your life or giving up your life will, will culminate in. That's actually the kind of sacrifice our wives are looking for. The sacrifice of giving up oneself is what God is calling us to. You know, if you think about it, this, this love is largely unknown by experience in the world. It's part of the reason we make such a big deal when stories like this unfold, isn't it? They will actually make the headlines. Whether it be a firefighter, as our community is mourning right now, a man who's loved and respected and gave his life trying to spare others the devastation of, of fires. We make a big deal about that. We, we recognize that that's heroic because it's sacrifice of one person for the good of another. And sadly, it seems to be less and less common in our day and age, and particularly in the context of marriage. And I've got to admit that as I look back 27 years ago to when we were married, I'm, I can't say that I was marrying Kristen because I thought that she is going to provide an awesome opportunity for me to sacrifice every day. <laughs> I said for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, or sickness and in health, but I wasn't thinking about what worse and poor and sickness might actually entail. I was actually more focused on the benefit that it seemed to bring to my life at that point. And, and there are benefits. So I don't want to downplay those. But this is a radically different kind of love that God is calling us to as husbands in the context of Christian marriage. And for many of us, when we reach that point where we say, I'm not getting anything out of this, we begin to think about Marriage, much the way we think about other arrangements, business arrangements, contracts, agreements, and in some ways in, in the way we might even close down a bank account and take our business elsewhere, we, we think similarly as a culture. But how powerful <clears throat> when men who have been forgiven all of their sins, who have experienced the life-transforming grace of Jesus Christ begin to love their wives in this kind of sacrificial way, it actually displays something that many would say, I, I not believe in that. Is that real? And that's part of what God intends. Christ sacrifices for us in love. Here's the second S word. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her. Sanctify is a word that simply means make her holy. All kinds of images that come to mind from 
spiritual cleansing and the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. But what the Word goes on to tell us here as we look at the text, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. See, one of the ways that Jesus makes His bride holy is just continually pours that living Word over her soul. That's part of why we sang that text as a prayer. The living word, it's living light. I mean, we, we need to be changed by that. And so Jesus does that. And whether it's through your own private reading of this book or coming to a place like this where we preach through it or in the next hour where, where we will teach portions of it, I mean, that, that, that work that Jesus is doing is with a view of making us holy. But look at the description as it unfolds further in this particular portion. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is continually washing his bride in preparation, and as he continues, look at this thought and just be amazed by this. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Are you catching the image? This is wedding imagery, and it's not just metaphorical. This is a future event that's being described by the Apostle Paul when Jesus Christ, who is the great eternal groom, will present himself with his bride. Now, in our culture, it's typically the bride who assumes the responsibility and, and does all the work to get herself ready, right? We've got a bride-to-be sitting in our midst here. It's a lot of work, isn't it? Planning and decisions that have to be made, but part of it is going to be what will she present herself like physically in this place? What's your wedding date again? March 22nd. It's a long way off, but not long enough probably in some ways, right? <laughs> so Brittany's taking this responsibility upon herself, and all kinds of things go into this one moment. I mean, the, the, it, it, I mean it's everything from just being prepared physically and make it's going to be hard to do this but trying to get enough rest and she's going to start planning out everything from hair and makeup to jewelry and shoes and most importantly the dress right that's probably like a big deal getting are you paying for any of this <laughs> see yeah and that's the big difference it's Jesus who assumes this responsibility and this awesome work of preparing his bride. And not only washing her with the word, but of loving her, and we'll get to some other terms in just a moment, that actually prepares her for that day of presentation. And it's the church, and we as those who are followers of Jesus are included in this. You see, our wedding day is coming. This is particularly encouraging because there are moments where, I mean, I'm... I know where my heart is and where my desires ought to be, but there's sometimes this, this discontinuity between with what I really profess and the way I'm living at that moment. How good it is to know that Jesus Christ is working to sanctify me personally, to sanctify us as his church and prepares for that day. But 
the corollary for us as husbands is that our love for our wives needs to actually beautify them, sanctifying them in a, in, in a parallel way. Husbands, you are a means of Christ's sanctification. And that means your love needs to be a, a means of, of Christ growing her in spiritual beauty. You know, we, we can't stop the aging process. And so in one sense, your, your bride is, is going to go the path you do if you live long enough. And so while physical strength diminishes and even physical beauty to some extent will be dimmed, it will change, spiritual beauty can continue to grow. Husbands, are you a force of that kind of sanctification? Is your wife more beautiful today spiritually than when you said I do? That's a challenging thought for us, isn't it? Christ sanctifies us by his love. And then I want you to look at verse 28 with me. Again, in the same way, that is, husbands, you, you don't have to measure up to any other man on planet earth, but you do need to measure your life and your love for your bride continually by the standard of Jesus Christ. So he loves his bride in this particular way, verse 28, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I'm so glad he put that in there because you know what? Every man is born knowing how to take good care of himself. And some of you wives and moms and sisters would go, man, tell me about it. (laughs) The problem is most of us as husbands don't look at our wives as ourselves. The default mode for us, unfortunately, still seems to be selfishness and self-protection and self-comfort and care and all of that. But listen to the words again. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The Lord makes this really simple for us. It says you need to love her as you love your own body. And then he uses two words that are also easy to understand. They're hard to practice, but this is it. This is his call, nourish and cherish. Nourish is a word that is used with reference to the kind of care that moms give their little ones. So this word is speaking of a tender, loving care. And the word cherish in a, in a non-Bible meaning, if you just went back and, and saw how it was common, you, commonly used in other places, conveys the idea of providing warmth. It, it would be akin to spreading a blanket over someone so, so they're not exposed to the chill or cold of the night. They're not exposed to the elements, so there's, there's protection. Nourish and cherish. Man, I gotta tell you, that means we, we gotta be students of our wives, and that's hard. We get so busy with life, and we're feeling the weight of our own responsibilities and, and the, the things that God has called us to, but th- we can't neglect this and just assume wives are okay, so it's important to not only listen, but even be a student. Where does she feel exposure? It's amazing to me how the Lord illustrates some of this for me 
And I don't say this to like give myself a pat on the back, but just this morning, Kristen shared some things with me and then apologized. She's like, I'm sorry to share this with you because you got to preach in a little bit, which was so kind and thoughtful of her. But at the same time, like, man, thank you for letting me actually live what I've been studying. I should practice what I preach and really try to do it. Of course, we could probably also talk about a number of occasions where she'd be like, are you listening to your message? Because there was that time that you did it. <laughs> so when your wife actually speaks up and says, here's one of my concerns, or this is something on my heart, man, that's where you go, there's an opportunity to you know, put the blanket of protection or warmth across her soul. That's, that's what cherishing means. How many times, though, and I'm so guilty of this, are we like totally focused on you know, something else? For me, it would be the work of, of the ministry. I mean, pastoring is what I'm called to do, and I love it. But, but there are times where, you know, Kristen will say, you're not here. Your, your body's in this room, but you are not here. You need to be with me, or you need to be with our family. And I think, oh, yeah, I do. That'd be an example of not cherishing You think of the way Jesus is always present. I mean, there's never one moment where he's disengaged from you, distracted with other things, too busy to hear your cry or hear your prayer. There's not one moment where he suddenly is inactive in seeking to provide that strength that you are in need of at that moment. That's what nourishing is. He's continually caring for you with tenderness and attention protection and affection I'm just amazed again at the love that Jesus has for us so his is a love that strengthens us there's your third C now why do we do this Husbands, why do, we, why do we love sacrificially, sanctifyingly, and in a strengthening way? Well, certainly it's commanded. That's very plain from the text. The, these are commands that are given to us from the Lord through the Apostle Paul. I think we could also say because of a coming day when the church as a whole will be presented to Jesus, and that's going to include our wives. This is a thought that sometimes overwhelms my heart, and I've shared it on a number of occasions, even in weddings that I've performed through the years, that you know, this, this, uh, this covenant agreement that Kristen and I have is actually temporary. That's why the vows included those words, till death do us part. Jesus said there's, there's no marriage or marrying or giving in marriage in the eternal state, but we will be like the angels, and Kristen and I wrestle with that sometimes, and I think, my love for you will be perfect, but we won't, you know, be husband and wife at that particular point, we'll have the memory of that, and then, you know, one of us will say, but will you still come have coffee with me sometimes? I think, yeah. <laughs> but there's a day that's coming when this covenant will end, and she, in a, in a real sense, I will return her to Jesus. She's actually his bride first, and temporarily he's gifted her to me. So the question we have to wrestle with, husbands, is what condition will our bride go back to Jesus? Sobering, isn't it? 
Now, despite our imperfect love, he's going to make sure she's perfect at that day. But it's possible that he will have to work in a way to overcome some of the stupid and sinful stuff that we've done. And that's, that's true, but brothers, if I can just speak really honestly, we need to cut it out. We need to stop being stupid and start being Christ-like and biblically smart. Don't you want Jesus to look you, look you in the eyes on that great day as he embraces his perfect bride, which will include your wife, and say to you, well done. Your love was this beautiful reflection of my love for the church. That's what every one of us needs to aspire to. Which brings me to the third point. Look again at the text. Verse 31 is actually a quotation of Genesis 2. So Paul goes all the way back to the writings of Moses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Your, your English translation may have that in quotations the way mine does, and though Paul doesn't say this is Genesis 2 or the writing of Moses, that's what he's doing. So he reached all the way back to the beginning because that's how God designed it from the beginning. But then he goes on to say, verse 32, this mystery is profound. Well, what is a mystery? Let's talk about that for just a moment. In biblical terminology, when you encounter that word mystery, it has reference to typically some sacred thing that is hidden or kept secret that you and I would never know on our own. Something that comes out of the secret counsels of God. But in his kindness and in his grace, he makes it known. He reveals it to us. And what is the mystery that Paul refers to here? Is it, is it how one man and one woman could come together and become one flesh? No, that's, that's a, a marvelous thing, but read to the end of the verse. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, he's already touched on this, and really backing up um, to verse 30, 31, and 32, as you read through those verses, you, you encounter those phrases, those truths. We are members of his body. Or verse 31, the quotation, the two shall become one flesh. He considers us to be members of himself. So this mystery that he's talking about is the relationship that Christ has with the church where they, we, with him, are eternally united, personally united, vitally united, irrevocably united. How can that be that human beings like us could be brought into a one flesh relationship with Jesus Christ? That's a mystery. But you know, part of the way that God reveals that to the world is in the context of Christian marriage when husbands love their wives in a Christ-like way, sacrificing, sanctifying, strengthening them by that love. It makes it a little easier for us to say to a world that we're seeking to share the gospel with, you know, Jesus will take you as his bride and be in relationship with you, and if you repent of your sins and put your faith in him and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and salvation and eternal life, he will dwell with you forever he will be your groom and you will be his bride and and thinking people will say that's impossible but one of the ways we reinforce 
The power of that truth is by loving our wives. I don't know why God would do this because it frankly seems like a really risky thing, but do you recognize he has attached the communication of his glorious relationship with the church to our Christian marriages? And you want to be an evangelist? You want to share the good news? There are a variety of ways to do it, but one of the most powerful ways to do it, men, is as Christian husbands, we love our wives in a Christ-like way. That's an awesome thought to me. And I'm going to tell you, as many times as I've been through this passage, when I was coming to this point again and thinking, oh, Lord, how do I respond to this? How do we as men respond to it? The first two words that came to my mind first, the first one was brokenness, because I'm not this with my wife the way I need to be. And if you're sitting in your seat at this moment saying, man, I, I mean, I am not very Christ-like in my love, then I would invite you to join me as I have been repenting even this week over these things and saying, God, forgive me for my pride, for my selfishness, for my for my thoughtlessness and carelessness, for my self-righteousness that wants to justify my position or my opinion or my words or actions rather than just humbly saying to my wife, please forgive me, I was wrong, or, or even just sacrificing myself and, and inconveniencing myself. I, I would beg you, men, that's the path we need to go together. That's kind of the negative statement. Of the positive would be Consecration, that's the second word. Consecrate yourself to loving your wife in this way. And that's where we, we readily admit, Lord, we can't do it perfectly, but if you will empower us and strengthen us, if you will give us that grace day by day, then our love can be the kind of healthy and whole reflection of Christ-like love that it ought to be. So husbands in particular, and even men who aren't married yet, some young men in this room, we all can consecrate ourselves to being the kind of Christ-like men that given the opportunity to enter a covenant relationship with a woman, we would love her as a bride and, and it would be the beautiful display of Christ loving his bride. Every one of us can consecrate ourselves in that way. Out of that, we need to think through practical ways. And you know what? If you, if you can't come up with ideas it's okay to ask your wife. And so ladies, I'm just telling you, please don't abuse or punish your husband if he, even this afternoon or later, is like, hey, I really want to do this. Can you give me some ideas? Just work with him. Even, even though I know you're going to be saying like, we've been married how long? And I still have to tell you, yeah, you do. You, you just work with him, okay? And the reality is you change over time. And stuff that was a big deal to you when you were first married, 10, 15, 20 years into marriage, it, it's just not a big deal. But you have other big deals and bless his heart, if he's been trying to keep notes and suddenly the, the rules changed a little bit, so you may need to tell him, you're working with an old set of notes. So here's the revised and updated version. It's a whole other area of marriage, but I'm serious about this. That's, that's, what, that's what healthy marriages include, that kind of communication that just speaks openly and humbly. All right? So wives, help, help your husbands. And, and God willing, if he gives us seven more days of life, we'll come back and hit those few verses that precede this. And even what God calls you to do, and again, the hammer is not that these are commands. The hammer is it's all about Jesus. 
And even you as wives ultimately are, are called to live in a way that reflects uh, the glory of Christ. So marriage is not about us. It's not about our happiness, our mutual fulfillment, the realization of our hopes and dreams and ambitions, whatever plans you know, we used to talk about prior to marriage. The, all of that is secondary. What, what the Lord just did is, is say, you know what, your marriage is actually about Jesus and the church. Wow. We need his help, don't we? So let's pray together, and we're going to ask for that help. And men, I'm inviting you right now just to talk to the Lord, and you talk to him real honestly. And then after that conversation, some of you need to talk to your wives, and you'll need to say, please forgive me. I've sinned against you in these particular ways, and God convicted me this morning. And I really do want to grow in my Christ-like love for you. Can you help me? That'll be a hard conversation for some of you. And can I even extend this offer? Some of you are in such a... um, that, that'll put you in a really tight spot. You may need to recruit some help for that. And I say this with all sincerity. Kristen and I would be happy to be a part of that conversation. There are other couples here or individuals who would love to help you. And uh, we, we don't just want to kind of toss you back out on the street and say, good luck to you. We'll talk next week. Um, we want to help one another. Another idea for some of you young couples would be to find one of these older couples and just say, could, could we just share a little meal together and talk? Tell us. Tell us about your 52 years of marriage. And they'll probably go like, really? <laughs> but they're probably also going to have some great wisdom. So there are a lot of ways to do this. But let me just remind you again, in all of this, we need Jesus first and foremost. You cannot do this on your own. But we have a great Savior. Some of you have experienced the power of being buried with him and raised to newness of life. Others of you haven't yet experienced that, and that's also another conversation we'd love to have with you. So as we close our service today, though, Christ is everything. He is our life. Let's seek him now. Father, as we consider where we are, even in the context of marriages, all of us are, are wrestling, struggling. We're, we're just full of our own sin and self-righteousness, and sacrificing doesn't come naturally, but that's part of the new birth, and we praise you for it. And I ask that you would empower husbands in particular this day to humble themselves under your authoritative word and that they would recognize the call that you've put upon their lives is, it's huge. It's beyond their capacity, but it's glorious in and of itself because the call to love an earthly bride in a way that would reveal the eternal heavenly love that Christ has for his bride is, is just an awesome privilege. So sanctify us, wash us with the water of the word, cleanse our hearts by your powerful touch from all of our sin and self-righteousness, and we ask that you would grow us in Christ-likeness. I pray that your blessing would rest upon each marriage here. Some are struggling intensely right now. Others are actually in in a good spot, but regardless of where we might find ourselves at this moment. All of us need you. So protect us from the evil one. He would love to divide and destroy. He would love to ruin the the beautiful portrayal of this mysterious relationship of Jesus and his church. But would you drive him away and would you guard us from those temptations? And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would bring blessing and help and hope strength and joy and peace 
wholeness to each household here. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.